If you're ignoring Bitcoin now as a growth manager, you are ignoring that an alternative monetary reality has come into existence on this planet. Hello there from Guatemala. I have uh, come over here from El Salvador to see what's going on with the Bitcoin scene. I met some Guatemalan people over in El Salvador and they invited me over. So I've taken the trip. It's been a long day, but it's great to come over here and see see what's happening. Wow, what a crazy week. Never a dull moment in Bitcoin. Thank you to everyone who sent me great feedback following my thread addressing some of Elon Musk's criticisms of Bitcoin. I didn't really think it through too much. I I didn't expect him to read it, but I wrote it anyway. I I was just a bit annoyed at the criticism of Bitcoin and the promotion of Doge, especially seeing out in places like this the very hard work people are putting into creating a Bitcoin ecosystem and using what is the best and hardest money to try and change people's lives. So it was a bit frustrating. It's now become a crazy week. Mainly positive feedback. I've had a few hundred emails and thousands of DMs. I can't even get through the DMs. I'll try and do my best over time. I do want to say thank you to the people who've been positive. Uh, a few death threats and a few people telling me to go kill myself. So obviously they disagree, which is fine. We can always debate these points. Anyway, how are you all? Welcome to the 350th episode of the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I use for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got another interview with Nick Bartia. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. Okay, first up today is sportsbet.io, the best place for online gaming because they accept Bitcoin. And we have a big competition coming in Miami. They're going to be giving away a Lambo, but there's going to be an extra edge to this competition, which every Bitcoiner is going to love, every one of you. So it's very cool. I'm very glad to be working with them on this. Now, with sportsbet.io, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. They cover football, tennis, American sports, motorsports, even esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S bet.io forward slash promotions. Next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin. And someone asked me recently, they said to me, Pete, what are you using Exodus for? Explain it to me. So I have this problem that I've been increasingly using Bitcoin for my business. I get paid in Bitcoin and I pay people in Bitcoin. And my accountant was always at the end of each month saying, Pete, I have no idea what these payments are for. What are you doing? So when the Exodus guys reached out to me, I checked out their wallet. They have this advanced feature where I can add notes to all of my transactions so I can keep my accountant happy. But the wallet's awesome. They've crushed the UX, so I love using it. But if you want to check it out, please head over to exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Next up, we have Casa, the very best in Bitcoin security. Now, if you had a good year, if you are sat on a decent stack of Bitcoin and you aren't custodying it, or you have it all on a single wallet, it's probably time for you to consider Casa. And now I know what you're thinking. Do I really need this? It's going to be a pain to set up. Maybe some of you are thinking, what the hell is a multi-sig wallet? I don't know what that is, Pete. I know I had all the same questions, but honestly, it could not be easier to set up. And once you've done it, you will have so much peace of mind with your Bitcoin. Because a multi-sig wallet allows you to custody your Bitcoin, but only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you distribute into different locations, which protects you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. And if you've got questions about it, you can reach out to me. You can drop me a DM or drop me an email, and I'll answer every question I can. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. If you want to find out more, head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Okay, so on to the show today, and I have my buddy and incredible Bitcoin author, Nick Bartia, back on the show. A few months ago, Nick came on to discuss his new book, Layered Money, and that book has gone down an absolute storm. And now just a few weeks ago, he released another article called Asset Managers Owning Bitcoin is Now Your Fiduciary Duty. And of course, I had to get him back on the show to go through that. Now, we did record this a couple of weeks ago when Bitcoin was sat at about 56K and before all the Elon Musk FUD. And we do talk about Tesla a bit, so if you wonder why we don't talk about the FUD or everything that's happened since, that's why. I always love talking to Nick. I think he is an excellent writer, and this conversation was no different from previous. But if you do have any questions or feedback, you can always reach out to me. You know that. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Okay, I'll let you go and enjoy the interview now. Nick, man, good to see you again. Sorry uh, sorry we keep delaying this interview. <laughs> no worries. Great to see you. Uh, so firstly, tell me how the book is going it's going great. Uh, we're over 18,000 copies worldwide now. 
um, wow. which is really, really exciting. Um, that includes uh, some first run orders from Korea and China. Both of those uh, foreign translation rights have been signed and first runs have been uh, ordered. So I'm really excited about uh, the Chinese version um, partnered with Social Sciences Academic Press, which is a publishing arm of the Chinese uh, government. And so they are fully embracing the idea of Bitcoin as an investment, which is something that I'd love to get into a little bit more today, Uh, not necessarily as money or as a competitor to their currency, but just as an investment. And the the book has just gotten great feedback around the world, so I'm just really excited about where it's going. What's it What's it meant for you, though? I'm I'm assuming since the book's been released, your DMs have been on fire, your your emails on on fire. I'm assuming a lot of people to get in touch. How's that affected your time and kind of what you're doing and focusing on? It's changed everything for me because uh, up until when the book was published, I was still trying to find my way in the new Bitcoin career. Um, I worked for a couple startups, as you know, uh, writing for them. I I wrote the book. I've been writing blog articles for a few years, but um, I left the bond industry for good in late 2019. And so the book getting a strong feedback and actually selling copies and bringing in some revenue has brought me uh, private consulting and writing contract gigs but it's also nice. encouraged me to become an author full-time. And so nice. that's what I've decided to do. And uh, the second book is officially underway. And I'm, I haven't told anybody about this yet, but... Um, Ooh, I, exclusive. This is an exclusive here. Um, the book is going to be focused on Bitcoin. Uh, as you know, Layered Money was in large part a history book to give the backdrop for Bitcoin. But the second book is going to be 100% on Bitcoin and looking to the future. Amazing. Amazing. Well, look, congratulations on getting the book out. Um, I know a lot of work went into it, and I know it's been well-received. But I think the coolest thing out of this is you've got that thing that a few of us have been lucky to get. I think it's a very lucky thing and fortunate place to be in life where you get complete 100% freedom and control over your time. Like You get down to wake up, don't you, every day and just choose to do what the hell you want to do. That's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, working in the bond market here on the West Coast means a 5.30 a.m. start uh, on the desk every day, which means, you know, uh, an alarm well early into the forehandle. And, uh, you know, that life, while it gave me so much uh, background and knowledge and experience, um, there's nothing like working for yourself and setting your own schedule and deciding what you know how you want to allocate your time. So I have lots of contract work on my plate, which keeps me pretty busy. But I get to decide when and where I you know I get to do it from. So it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I uh, I, I put out a tweet once. I talked about things like the, the two most important scarce properties in life is Bitcoin and uh, time. Uh, and I, I'm a, I, I don't know how old you are. I'm 42. I'm 33. I'm, I'm st- Oh, you're you're a baby. Um, I'm like, I'm looking at like shit. This is kind of career wise. I'm in, I'm in like the final stretch now. Like the last ten ten to fifteen years. I was, I said I said I'm out here with Jack Mallers, and you know he's twenty seven. He's an entrepreneur, and I'm thinking, I, well, I ne- I'll never get to do that again. But I'm I'm uh, like in that final stretch, and just having that control over your time, uh, I I think is. Is probably the best thing you can have in life. You know, your health's important, family's important, but like just on a personal career thing, that control over time did. Yeah, it's awesome. You know, I worked uh, I worked on the road uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that was really awesome. Uh, you know, just to be able to uh, look at the ocean while riding, and you know, little things like that. Being able to take a bunch of Fridays off this year just because um, I need a little bit of time to reset, um, especially when thinking about the next book. That's not something that can happen with uh, a really crowded mind and a really busy mind. So I need that, you know, that time and that freedom to do the research, to get back into, um, you know, one of the one of the ways that I do research is just read late, late into the night. And if I have an early alarm with work to do in the morning, I can't 
have that freedom to do that. So I've started that already, that uh, sort of pre-research phase right now. Are you a, are you a reading guy or an audiobook guy? Um, reader. Uh, so I, I will say that during my Bitcoin rabbit hole phase, which was, you know, 2016 to 2018, um, it, it was all podcasts for me. So um, that was like the way that I learned about Bitcoin because Bitcoin itself is, is right now. And so there's no book that's going to bring you up to speed. Um, you know, you had to be in the moment, living through the Segwit battle, all of that stuff. It was podcasts, just just pod, pod after pod after pod. Um, but for for research and uh, just overall big picture thinking, uh, reader. And I've transitioned from physical books to the Kindle app now. Ah, uh, yeah, I've, I've toyed with the idea of the Kindle. I'm I'm an audiobook person, just because of a lack of time. Uh, I tend to listen to a book while walking. Uh, most of my interviews tend to be evenings because when I'm back in the UK and I'm interviewing people in the States, it's my evenings. And then I've got the kids. And and if I try and read a book, <laughs> when I try to get a better read a book, I get about three pages in and pass out. So I, I tend to do audiobooks now in the morning. But the problem with an audiobook is you hear something, you're like, ah, oh, that's like a key moment. Or uh, actually, it's the same with podcasts. That Did you listen to Breed Love with Friedman? No, I haven't gotten to oh, dude, a chance you, to you. God, the four, that was the four-hour marathon, right? Yeah, I, I think the last hour isn't as important because that's a bit more about their own working styles, although they talk about note-taking in that. But there were so many gems that Breedlove was coming out with, like just, just like cannonball after cannonball of amazing kind of, how do I put it? It's just like specific things he was saying. I was thinking, oh, shit, I need to note that down. I need to have that ready because if somebody asks me a specific question, I could say, well... Breedlove said this, is this is what you need to hear. And and I've like been trying to figure out a way of um note-taking, but uh you don't really get to do that with audiobooks. But i I was told yeah, I really need to get onto a Kindle because there's ways of highlighting things and referring back to your notes. I guess that's what you're doing. Well, my my reading style is it's actually kind of seasonal, where you know, when I'm when I was writing layered money, like for the last several months, I didn't read a single thing. It's it's all writing, right. there's no reading involved. Um, so that's what I mean by seasonal where, you know, I don't read for a while, but then I pick up some books and the Kindle allows me to cycle through three or four books at the same time. Um, I also can put my like download research from my academic journal resources and then send those to my Kindle app so I can have, uh, different things, you know, in the works. And I like the Naval style of reading where, you know, it's not about reading to completion necessarily, but it's just about reading to capture what you need to capture. So, you know, I'll read the same 10 pages 50 times in a book because it's what I need to capture and then, you know, move on. So the Kindle allows me um, a lot of freedom with that. And also it allows me to, you know, read late into the night, you know, in bed. Well, let's get into Bitcoin, man. What a time. What a time. Fucking wild right now. I was um I did an interview yesterday with David Bailey um prep for are you coming to Miami? I'm not. Ah uh, I thought we would have a beer. All right, man. Well listen, I did an interview with him in prep for that. And we were talking about like how wild it is right now. And I was saying, you know, I remember back in about 2017 when I first heard the term hyper Bitcoinization, and I read the piece on it on the Nakamoto Institute. And I, I like completely honest, I was like, yeah, bullshit. Like, yeah, Bitcoin's core is this digital money, right? Yeah, and it's great. And we can move it around and we can, you know, we, we have all these great properties, but there's no chance that like Bitcoin becomes this uh, global reserve asset. Like, I admire the uh, ambition, but I was like, yeah, bullshit. Uh, obviously, like any person who has a doubting moment over time, you, you you get proved wrong again and again. And we're living in this moment where I feel like, I just feel like we're teetering on the brink of an absolute explosion. I don't feel like what's happened so far in the last year is an explosion. It's an amazing. But I feel like we're teetering on this moment now. Well, it's, it's a bit like tipping point, right? All everything is lining up geopolitically, uh, economically, uh, infrastructure-wise. Uh, all the banks. I mean, I, did I read something about Nidig and now helping all the banks to set up so their uh, customers can buy and 
custody Bitcoin. And I just feel like we're teetering on this explosion. How are you feeling, dude? Yeah, I, f- I feel the exact same way. Uh, I do agree with you that the move that we've had so far is not the explosion. Um, it's kind of bringing us back right up to speed. And the explosion is yet to come. Uh, it comes from adoption. Every incremental person that comes into the network or comes into the de- denomination strengthens that case. Uh, the supply is inelastic, as we all know. And so the amount of Bitcoin that is available, you know, the supply side relative to the demand explosion that we're experiencing, um, it, it just it's very exciting and it does feel like we are at the tipping point. And, you know, something that I want to talk to you about and ask you about is mm-hmm. you're interviewing people every day. You're, you're with Jack Mahler's right now in El Salvador and, um, as he's building this, uh, behemoth Bitcoin infrastructure company. And, you know, you sat down with Cameron and Tyler and you're, you're seeing like how the world is becoming a Bitcoin world right in front of our eyes, really. And, you know, relative to two years ago where, um, you know, it still feels like the pure counterculture. And so maybe I do really agree with this idea that Bitcoin still is the counterculture. Um, when I'm out talking to normies and, you know, regular people and pre-coiners and no-coiners, um, I still get the sense that uh, people have no idea that money is changing or that Bitcoin is being introduced as uh, a base technology, kind of like the internet was uh, 20 years ago. So, you know, what, what are you seeing? Like, how, uh, what is the most exciting thing to you out there? That's a good question. Oh, there's so many bits to die, like delve into in that. I feel like there's two worlds of Bitcoin, the, the inside world and the outside world. Uh, and I feel like the people... On the inside, we're looking out at everybody who's the no-coiners, those who, who don't see it yet. And we're like, what the fuck? How do you not understand this? And all the no-coiners on the outside looking in going, what the hell is this about? This seems dumb. Like, there, there becomes a time when it clicks. It's a bit like, have you, ever been a, have you ever learned to code, like be a computer programmer? So um, I'm not a coder, but my uh, experience really is in Excel. So when I'm... I do think of myself as a coder within the Excel program because I'm building tools that turn mm-hmm. X into Y and, um, but, and, you know, a little bit of visual basic, which is like the code in the back of Excel. But, um, like I failed all my coding classes in, in my master's program. Uh, so it's just, no, it's not, it's not my skill set. Well, my, my coding career was very short. Um, back in, when I was 20, so 22 years ago, I, I needed a website and wanted to build one. So I bought this book on HTML and I learned it. And HTML is very easy. It's just a markup language. You know, opening cl- tag, say it's a bold tag, opening tag, closing tag, and that bolts. It's very basic language to learn. But the next step up was to learn JavaScript. And I bought a JavaScript book and struggled with it. But what I did do is I, I, I was also building things in this thing called Flash. Do you remember all the Flash crap that was on the internet? Yeah. And it has a language behind it called ActionScript. And I struggled. I really struggled to understand coding. I really struggled to understand the way it worked. But then just one day it clicked. One day I was like building a script to do something and and the logic of how uh, a script is executed in order for it to create the the outcomes that you want. And then once I did that, it was like, oh, it's very easy. Like I would learn to build objects and blah, 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 all the stuff. I mean, I can't remember it now because I ended up thinking I don't want to be a coder. But one day it clicked. And I think there's this thing with Bitcoin. It's like, when you're an outsider, I think you can have a number of perspectives. You can look and go, hmm, right, is it, is it just some like weird digital money? You know, doesn't mean anything because it's not backed by anything. Like you see all those kind of stories. You can't make sense of it because in your world, money is issued by government. You know, online money, it can't mean anything, right? And then some people get dragged in for whatever reason. They go down the rabbit hole and suddenly it clicks. It just clicks and there's that moment. So I feel like there's like this line and we're we're side of it. And sometimes we don't understand each other. So I sometimes think Bitcoiners aren't patient enough to try and help people on the outside coming in, you know, with the perspectives they come in. And I also think people on the outside aren't patient enough to go in and learn. So there is these two worlds. But I tell you what, coming down here to El Salvador has been a mind-blowing experience. I came here uh, 
18 months ago, I was in the BitConf in Uruguay and I met Michael Peterson who runs Bitcoin Beach. And he was like, we've got this little Bitcoin project happening in El Salvador. Can you come and see it? And I was like, yeah. So I got a flight, came out to El Salvador and basically he, someone had donated some Bitcoin and he set up this program where to keep kids out of gangs would give them jobs and pay them in Bitcoin. And then he got the local shops to accept Bitcoin. Like, you know, I think there was like a hairdresser and a couple of stores. And that was like kind of cool. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But, you know, good luck. That's going to be a struggle, blah, blah, blah. We've had a pandemic. This is my first time back. I've come back so I can get into the US. So I just thought I'd come and chill somewhere for two weeks. And I've come back and it's entirely different. Every single... They've essentially had micro-hyper-Bitcoinization here in El Zonde. Every single store pretty much accepts Bitcoin. Everybody locally wants Bitcoin. Everywhere I go, I, I went yesterday to see this specialist about my back. I went to pay her. She said, oh, can you pay me in Bitcoin? <laughs> you know, where everywhere we go, like the coffee shops, everyone accepts Bitcoin, everyone wants Bitcoin, and everyone is using Bitcoin. And that for me was the moment it's like, this actually can happen. This actually can work. You can build an economy based purely on Bitcoin. So this to me, right now, what's happening here in El Zonte, it's little tiny surf town in El Salvador, is the most important thing on my mind right now. Honestly, it's blowing my mind, Nick. That's absolutely incredible. And it really speaks to the different use cases for Bitcoin. Because in United States, everyone's so focused on the dollar price. And is the dollar price going up? Or is it going down? And What's the cycle? What's the target price in the you know in dollar terms? But in different parts of the world, it's like our currency sucks. We need a new one. This is uh, you know the, a path to the future. Um, and then bringing back China, they're looking at it and they're like that appears to be the greatest investment opportunity in the world. They're not thinking of it as an alternative money. And they're not really even thinking of it as, oh, the price is, you know, volatile, it's going to go up and down. They're looking at maybe that might be just the best long-term investment for us as a people. So everywhere that you look, there's a different use case. But the network effect of everybody knowing Bitcoin is just getting stronger and stronger um, as we as we move forward. And it's just, it's really exciting. And it's why that I've chosen to just keep writing about Bitcoin because there are so many questions that need to be answered. Everyone gets caught up in the altcoin hype cycle every few years, but none of that is cognizant with this narrative that Bitcoin is uh, a base technology for the next several decades. I mean, it is, and it's here to stay. And the the uh, the network effect of it is getting just so strong. Well, the people down here in El Salvador, what's really interesting is, is they've learned why they want Bitcoin. They've just they've just it's just clicked for them. They've learned why they want it. Like like they've 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 crossed that line to go. When you pay me, please pay me in Bitcoin. They don't want the dollar. And, and they know Bitcoin's volatile. And yes, we're in a bull market, which has been great for a lot of them. But at the same time, they want Bitcoin. They know they need Bitcoin. You know, and they transfer some of it back to dollars because some places they need dollars, but they want Bitcoin. And yeah, it, it, I find it so super interesting. But and then I, I go back home and all my friends know I've got a podcast. It, not only do they know I've got a podcast, they know I've got like a podcast that's like been really successful this last year. They know what the topic is. Do any of them own Bitcoin? Nope. Do any of them care about it? Nope. Because I think they haven't been through enough pain yet with money. They've lived through fairly insidious, slow uh, debasement. You know, you don't really notice the debasement from month to month. You get paid, you go to the pub, you pay your mortgage, blah, blah, blah. That's pretty much what it is. They've never had issues moving money around. You come to a place like El Salvador, they have issues getting money, moving money. I mean, there's no cash. The funny thing about El Zonte, there is no cash point here, but there is a Bitcoin cash point. Incredible. I think think where you have pain with money or difficulty or, you know, you learn about Bitcoin, it becomes easier. I think, generally speaking, you know, you in the US, me in the UK, people in Europe, we've had it too easy. So... So essentially, the, the only people who have really benefited from Bitcoin are those who've got in early enough, done the work. Uh, been, yes, I also say we're a bit lucky in some ways. I, 
I was I feel lucky to have discovered Bitcoin. It's been life changing. But I I don't know how I don't know how we get that kind of like explosion in places like the UK where everybody suddenly says, oh shit, we need this. And I'm assuming it, it potentially comes with a, a massive increase of inflation soon. I mean, we've got a massive debt issue in the UK, you you have in the US, you perhaps see it then. I don't know, man. You, what do you think? Uh, I don't. I don't agree with that. I don't think that okay. inflation gets out of control in the UK or the United States to the point where it drives people into realizing Bitcoin is their savior. I don't agree with that narrative at all. It's part of okay. why I wrote Layered Money because the book doesn't even have the word inflation or deflation in the entire book. I don't feel that it's relevant to explaining the story of Bitcoin. Debasement is, right? And debasement is another way to describe the word inflation because inflation can be described as monetary inflation. But the price inflation aspect, which is what, you know, you're referring to and um, a lot of the narrative is, you know, is around that, oh, as prices go up a lot, people will realize that the currency sucks and drive them into Bitcoin. That is happening already in different parts of the world. Uh, like in Latin America and Af- and Africa, but I don't see that as something on the immediate horizon in the United States. It and it is part of why um, people in the United States, like you said, they haven't experienced the pain. They'll be some of the last people to own Bitcoin, and they might not ever even own Bitcoin, but rather they'll own a stock market portfolio that has a lot of exposure to Bitcoin because the companies themselves have anchor themselves to Bitcoin or are uh, holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet as a treasury asset uh, or other things like that. But other countries that are more familiar with either history or currency debasement um, are going to be quicker into uh, investing in Bitcoin or converting their savings into Bitcoin like you're seeing in El Salvador. And so the 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 thing that drives the people in the west to it is the fomo it's the it's the returns um mm-hmm. that's really what drives it's not what drives people in el salvador which are which are going into it because it's the it's the most real thing that they can get their hands on monetarily speaking it's monetary reality for them yeah the, the interesting thing on the debasement um i really like what breedlove was saying recently that uh, money printing is, uh, or, or debasement, is legalized counterfeiting. Of course it is. I mean, because if you think about um, the people that hold the unit of account, dollars or pounds, they're not agreeing to uh, debase the currency or to print the money or to issue reserves or to do QE. That's a decision that the central bank and the government makes. So... The government is uh, debasing the currency. They're they're counterfeiting the money um, because they're, I mean, I guess they're counterfeiting it because nobody else is approving it but them, right? But, um, you know, again, the money printing doesn't drive the price of Bitcoin up. The money printing and the, and the actions of the central banks drive people to seek an alternative to that system. And some of those people end up in Bitcoin. Some of those people end up in other things. Like if you think about a lot of American uh, investors that are so focused on the real estate uh, component, they're making plenty of money right now. Real estate prices are going up. The people that want to own stocks instead of uh, bonds or anything that's a, you know, a fixed deposit those people are also seeking an alternative to the debasement. And so if you're long stocks or you're long real estate, that's also an expression. It's an expression of your position against what the central banks are doing. So Bitcoiners have that same position. But I I hesitate to just like correlate money printing, inflation, Bitcoin price going up because it's not really the case everywhere you look. Not everybody that's buying Bitcoin is doing it because money printer money printer go burp, you know. Well, I, some claim they are. I mean, if you look at the, I think if you, I think it was was it Tesla who mentioned it when they purchased, they were worried about 
dollar debasement. And Danny Druckenmiller, he mentioned it in their report. So people are raising it. People and and of course it drove me into the it the yeah. the QE itself drove me into studying gold and it's how I found Bitcoin and it's why Bitcoin was so obvious to me at that point because I study what the Fed does so I'm not saying that it doesn't it it drove me you know myself the QE the money printing it drives people to find uh, an alternative to the system and Bitcoin is that outlet but if you look at the way that uh, prices go up in certain aspects of the economy and stay put in other aspects of the economy. Inflation is still at one percent in Europe, statistically speaking. Mm-hmm. That that's not uh, enough st- statistical inflation to drive people into like I have to own Bitcoin or else my currency is going to go away tomorrow. It's just not that but, to me. Yeah, mm, go ahead. I was going to say it depends how you measure it. Um, the house price inflation we're seeing in the UK right now is. Is way above one percent, and so it and so is it here in the United States. That's the that's people trying to escape the unit as um, their denomination. They'd rather just own property, and it actually brings me to something I've been thinking about. Like as Bitcoin becomes more and more popular, it becomes more and more adopted, uh, and the price goes up. What are Bitcoiners going to focus on at that point? I think that they're going to be more focused on other forms of property rights, because Bitcoin is the most magnificent advance in property rights in human history, right? That's why I'm in it. It's part of why um, I think it's it underpins a lot of the reason that people own it. It's just this, it's this advance in property rights that nobody can take it away from you. It's digital and um, it's scarce in a very measurable way. And so, but Bitcoiners are already talking about citadels. Why? Because they're, they want to live in a place where their property is valued in the same way that, or protected in the same way that Bitcoin protects them, monetarily speaking. So, you know, I think we're going to transition into this, you know, Bitcoin is the model for property rights and, you know, just changing the way that we think about that. And, you know, people that are seeking Bitcoin, again, because of the QE directly, I sympathize with them because it's part of my narrative too. But I think it's uh, a little, I think it misses a lot of the uh, important narrative as well. Next up, I talked to Nick more about Bitcoin, a fiduciary duty. But before that, I have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And first up today is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. And I'm still using the Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces directly with your device. You can also connect your Nano S to an Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Gemini, my new exchange sponsor, who I am now using for buying and selling, well, I say selling Bitcoin. I've not sold any Bitcoin through Gemini yet. I'm only hodling. I'm going to be hodling all the time. We only huddle, right? Now, I've started using the Gemini app for buying dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better and easier interface for buying Bitcoin. Now, I do always want to give a massive shout out to Cameron Tyler for supporting the show. I've been super impressed with everything they've wanted to do to help Bitcoin. They are sponsoring devs, but they are open-minded to other project ideas, which is really cool. If you want to check out Gemini, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. And today we're going to be finishing off with BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And they offer a number of products for Bitcoiners. So with a BlockFi interest account, you can earn yield on your Bitcoin. I've been a customer using their interest accounts for nearly two years and letting my Bitcoin work for me. And with a Bitcoin-backed loan, you can also borrow against your Bitcoin without selling. And you can now register for the BlockFi credit card, which launches imminently, offering 1.5% rewards back on all card purchases. If you're interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Okay, so listen, you've um, you said you've been writing. You wrote a new article. I've got it, I've got it written here. Asset managers owning Bitcoin is now your fiduciary duty. There are certainly still asset managers out there who are in denial about Bitcoin or still don't believe in it. 
Some of them are about 97 years old, which I think is quite funny. <laughs> um, I think it was a sailor who said, you, you don't go to your great-grandfather for advice on technology. Um, but you're saying it's a fiduciary duty, as in Bitcoin is a home run now. Like, it is a proven asset class. Um, it is a, a, is a proven part of the system. So how do you actually, how do you actually articulate that it's a fiduciary duty, though? Yeah, I'll explain. So the managers that I've worked at in the past are fixed income managers and their uh, mandates or their responsibilities to their investors, their fiduciary duty is to make sure that capital is returned and um, that, uh, you know, income is sought. And so for those types of managers, it's not their fiduciary duty to own Bitcoin. That's not what they promised their clients. So I just want to be a little bit more specific about that. However, okay. if you're an investment manager that has promised your clients growth, so let's say you invest in tech stocks, and that's like your mandate uh, is to, to find stocks or equities or other investments that you think can have a very large growth uh, opportunity. So venture capital funds you know, fall into this mix as well. If you're promising your clients growth, that's what you're promising them that you're going to go out and seek and for some reason you're ignoring Bitcoin, then you're ignoring your fiduciary duty to your clients um, because of something that has arrived. And that's really the point here is that if you're ignoring Bitcoin now as a growth manager, you are ignoring that a monetary reality, an alternative monetary reality has come into existence on this planet. You have just told me about a town in El Salvador where 100% of or 90 plus percent of the people are using Bitcoin as a currency, as a system, and where now anybody that owns a, a portion of the S&P 500 has some exposure to Bitcoin on their balance sheet because of Tesla. And you're not at least paying attention to it. It is as if you were not paying attention to the internet uh, 20 years ago. It's a violation of your fiduciary duty. Can you imagine being a growth manager 20 years ago with no exposure to the internet? And you called it a bubble, and but then you didn't own Amazon as a 20x over the next you know several years. Like Amazon wasn't a bubble during the tech bubble in 01, right? It, it was just a preview. Because now, you know, Amazon is almost a $2 trillion company in market size. Um, so it's not it, calling it a bubble is no longer an excuse. It actually shows that you're not doing any research whatsoever. And again, I'm not talking about a, a manager who has to go out and buy government bonds and make sure that they return par and, you know, a couple percent on top. Um, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. But uh, if, if you're ignoring Bitcoin, then to me, you are ignoring your fiduciary duty to those seeking, um, you know, growth growth type returns. Well, what's the violation? Ignoring it or uh, accepting it but dismiss? Like, if you accept Bitcoin, if you do the work but you still dismiss it, are you still violating your fiduciary duty? Let's like, say are you that saying you... there's no sub, there's no argument against Bitcoin now. Well, let's say if you haven't at least read uh, one pro and one con um, and done the analysis yourself. Um, then you've ignored your fiduciary duty. Because if you look at it, I'm saying that if you are um, not analyzing Bitcoin, then you are violating your fiduciary duty. That's the point here. If you've made this conclusion that, okay, I've read a lot about Bitcoin. I don't think that it's the right idea for my investors, for my clients because of X, Y, Z. That is that is doing your duty, right? You You've made the analysis and all that kind of stuff. But it's not what I'm seeing. I'm still seeing just recycled old narratives because you read a headline. Like, at least buy a book about it. At least read one book about Bitcoin at this point. Uh, and if you which, haven't, which book? what are you doing? Which it's book called, should they read? It's called Layered Money. It's called, I mean, it's called Layered it's, Money. Buy the fucking book. <laughs> it's, so, it's so obvious right now. But, uh, you know, I, that's why I cited one book in my book, which is Andreas Antonopoulos' Mastering Bitcoin. Because at least at least try to understand what's happening here. And, you know, the fact that it's also above a trillion dollars, Pete, 
tells me that, you know, if you still haven't picked up a book about it, um, or at least tried to understand the bull case for it, then um, you just got your head in the sand. Yeah, and you say that volatility isn't a risk, but a, but a drawdown's a risk. And the, the reason I ask this is that, like I say, I feel like we're on the tipping point of some kind of explosive growth. I expect us within the next, I don't know, let's be, let's be, uh, let's be broad, let's say the next three months to... Uh, breach $100,000. I think there's so much stuff happening. But say at some point during the year, you know, let's say it's towards November, Bitcoin's amazingly at something like $200,000 and, you know, your firm suddenly thinks, yes, we need to get into this and put a percentage of their treasury into Bitcoin. And then say we go through another 70, 80% drawdown. Where, where, does, where does that sit with their fiduciary duty? And it's a great point. And it's actually when I give my presentations now, um, the, the volatility is the only risk that I acknowledge. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you in your mandate, you know, uh, promise to have a standard deviation of returns within a certain range, um, an allocation to Bitcoin can actually knock your expected deviation of returns outside of your promised uh, number to your client. And so uh, for that reason, um, Bitcoin can be skipped in portfolios because that's what you have a promise to your, your clients. You know, they can't afford an 80% drawdown, even if it's in a 2% position, because it actually, you know, it knocks them, it knocks all the returns that they were expecting um, off. Uh, so I do, I do completely agree with you that the volatility, it precludes a lot of investment. And that's okay for those managers that are making that analysis. And, um, you know, but if you are blaming other things that are not the volatility, it means that you're just not doing your homework yet. Like the, here's the other side of it too. A lot of the investment world, and I do contracting work in this world now too, is focused on the green future. ESG, environmental, social, and governance aspects of companies, um, and also countries too that they're investing in. And so if this ESG wave is actually meant to include the diversity and inclusion wave of, you know, that we see taking over the planet over the last couple of years because of social unrest in different parts of the world, and you're not looking at the people in El Salvador that have empowerment now through Bitcoin have freedom from their uh, government's oppressive currency regime or freedom from theft by inflation. El Salvador is an interesting one because it's a dollarized country. So they're actually subject to the oppressive regime of the US. Well, well, they're not not getting any stimulus checks here. Well, in Zimbabwe, they use the dollar as well. And so um, it still is an expression uh, against what your government is doing because the government can come in and introduce a currency in the future, but it doesn't mean that people will have to use it because they have an alternative. And, you know, so, you know, I, I do think that the empowerment component of Bitcoin plays directly into the diversity and inclusion theme, which is a direct part of the ESG uh, theme that is sweeping the investment public as well. And so if you're just like, Bitcoin is boiling the oceans, I'm not going to you know, invest in it, but ignoring the empowerment. And this is also something that I'm reading now. Every single one of these releases, like the, the Dalio employee that just went over to NIDIC, the CFO, mm-hmm. yeah, I know, they, they use the word empowerment in every press release now. So, hello, the empowerment component of Bitcoin is front stage and center. So you have to acknowledge that this is a force of good for many people in the world. And do, do, do we all it, know that empowerment? That that so, that I was just, just going to jump in that empowerment. That kind of like it, it's like that inner strength you get from knowing you have this asset that cannot be taken from you. Um, yeah, we had a thing that came out in the UK recently that we're going to have to declare our Bitcoin holdings. To the government, which I'm like, fuck off, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and no, I'll leave the country. But that kind of that when you talk about 
Bitcoin being the best form of property rights, when you realize that, when you actually take custody and you hold it and you own it and you realize you can send it to anyone without uh, any, any uh, middleman, there is that empowerment it gives you as an individual. Oh, absolutely. I, I always, you know, recall my first few Bitcoin transactions. Um, and they were, of course, sending it from one wallet to another wallet. So I was sending them to myself. So I wasn't engaging in the Bitcoin economy or whatever. You know, it's just, you know, oh, I'm toying with this wallet. I want to toy with that wallet. I want to try sending it, test transactions. It is uh, incredibly empowering. And um, it's just, uh, it's a very, uh, it was a very new feeling, you know, at that time. You'd be like, wow, this is, this is truly a new form of money um, so people that haven't actually used Bitcoin um, could never understand that empowerment. Well, that's like that first thing. Uh, you know, people, I hate that question, what is Bitcoin, right? I just hate the question because there's so many different ways you can attack the answer. Uh, and w- when people do ask me now, the first thing I'd say, say is just get some. Get a wallet. I'll send you some. I'll send you some sats. Just like watch this. Like I'm get, you hold your phone. I'll hold up my phone. I'm going to send you it. And then I explain to them that happened without any middleman. There's no, there's no company in between that makes this happen. Like this just happens on the Bitcoin network. Uh, and I always think that's like a little bit of a, uh, a light bulb moment. I did it with my assistant, right? <laughs> and then you had the funny moment. Like I said, a 50 bucks. And then she came out, she goes, it's now worth 60 bucks. <laughs> so that's like, that's, that's like that second uh, effect that you get, you get from Bitcoin. But it is empowering. Um, uh, again, I've referred back to my interview with uh, David Bailey yesterday. He's like, Talking about Miami is like we're all coming together. You know, this Bitcoin is so important now. You know, this is a force for good. You know, it is empowering, like you said. But it's like we've all come. We all come up with this similar attitude. This kind of like "fuck you" attitude. Uh, but it is empowering, and that's a really interesting thing on the the guy going over to Nidig because I didn't know he said that. You know, it's in every single press release now. Like uh, the. Video game, the video game company that just recently announced a treasury position. Yeah, they use the word empowerment. I mean, it, th- this is actually now my problem with um, you know those that are still dismissing it, or like I like to say the naysayer, um, the the naysayer coming with uh, you know really all of the fud now. It's just like hello. There's a there's this there's an empowerment aspect here, and you can't keep using the same recycled stuff. And a lot of it stemmed from a panel that I was going to be on uh, a, a couple months ago, and uh, somebody told me, you know, that the other guy is uh, going to be a Bitcoin naysayer, and I literally like fell out of my chair with excitement because I'm like, I can't wait to to talk to a naysayer in April, 2021. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. what, are, what, what are you reading? What are you reading? What arguments are you still coming with? I'll give you three minutes uh, for a volatility rant, but the other 57 minutes, um, you're in trouble. <laughs> you know, uh, you're in trouble. So uh, he, he had some sort of conflict. And so I didn't get to, um, I didn't get to do any of that. The guy that they plugged in was uh, worked at, a distributed ledger company. So he was, you know, fully versed in the technology and he had, you know, Bitcoin stuff behind him on his desk. So he was a Bitcoiner too. Um, so it was a well, good think, talk. Yeah. Nick, I think these, the naysayers come from two positions. Two, there's two general positions they come from now. I think there's gen, genuinely people who come from the position they missed out. There's certain journalists who will write negative Bitcoin articles and they've been in Bitcoin for a long time. And I feel like they missed out because they didn't, they didn't get in. I think um, uh, I've been very disappointed with the trajectory of, say, Nathaniel Popper's career because the first thing I read was Digital Gold. And I Same. loved that book. Loved, loved that book. And I've seen, seen him get sucked into this woke journalism attacking Bitcoin companies, yada, yada. And I just feel like sometimes it's like this negative internal feeling because it's like, shit, I, I could have bought this. Um, and they didn't. Whereas you got someone like Rizzo, who's maintained a really—he's actually become a, a much better journalist over time. Like really diving into Bitcoin, like the stuff he did on 
the last days of Satoshi was incredible. But I think there's that. There's people who've just missed out. Actually, I think there's three. I think there's people where Bitcoin doesn't fit in uh, their own model of economics. Uh, the Keynesian people who uh, regularly put out the same tripe on Twitter that they've always been putting out. Is it Hanke? That guy's always going on about. And I just think they can't fit into their model. I also think there's this other uh, model of people, and I think it's a, I think it's a political angle. I think the acceptance of when you accept Bitcoin for what it is, you have to accept that you lose the uh, the centralized aspect of government redistribution of income. And for some people, that's a real struggle because some people, even even if they're not like strong socialists, they still believe in that um, social safety net. And you you don't get that with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a your pure voluntary social safety net. Uh, I mean, I've just contributed to the f- fund that um, Miles Suit is raising for down here in El Salvador for the surf team. It becomes purely voluntary. And I think that last one's a real struggle f- for people because it, we have essentially eradicate the centralization of uh, redistribution of income. Yeah, I do, I do agree with you. And uh, none of those categories of people prevent uh, adoption which is, I think, the most important thing here is that you don't need to convert. Um, You know, I don't, I don't love the the whole sats narrative. Well, sats are a unit within Bitcoin. And we, I use the word sats when I'm, you know, charging people for invoices and, you know, or quoting an amount uh, of Bitcoin now, you know, I use the word sats, but like, trying to convert people by, you know, saying, oh, it's not about Bitcoin, but it's about sats and, you know, convincing of them of the unit bias or convincing them that, um, you know, Bitcoin is actually an empowering technology or convincing them mm-hmm. that they shouldn't be beholden to their government debasing the currency. It's just like, why do you need to convince everybody? We've already uh, gotten the adoption curve underway. Um, people uh, uh, are... People are spreading the word about Bitcoin naturally. It's being adopted. And, um, you know, not everybody is going to hop on board, but that won't prevent Bitcoin from changing the world in the same way that the Internet did. Like there were still people that didn't do a website for their company, you know, years and years after um, the Internet had gone or people that still weren't on email. But eventually everybody has to use the technology that's being used by the world and I think ignoring Bitcoin is also ignoring geopolitics. So Bitcoin is macro now. If you look at populism and geopolitics around the world, you have to put Bitcoin into your model. It just it is a natural evolution of the way that the world is moving. Now, you can't ignore it. It's just some fringe technology or some alternative money either. It it is going to play a role in the way that governments evolve. Um, you know, I always think back to a cousin of mine years ago asking me, he was like, wait, so, but if people can just send Bitcoin to each other peer to peer, doesn't that uh, affect the way that governments will be able to collect taxes in the future? I'm like, you got it, bingo. Like Bitcoin changes everything. And so Bitcoin isn't changing tax collection today. But I guarantee you it's going to have a role in the future on how governments are trying to collect it. When everyone's using Bitcoin, how are they going to tax? How are they going to spend in the same way that they do today? We don't know. Okay, there's a couple of things to dig into. Let's do the SATS thing first. So you're referring to this kind of SATS the standard, trying to get exchanges to price things in SATS, blah, blah, blah. Is that are you? Is your concern there is that it undoes some of the great work in building up? What is the brand of Bitcoin? Uh, not necessarily. It's my personal preference. So when I give Bitcoin 101 presentations, I try to ignore the price altogether and focus on the market cap. I call it the total market value so that people know exactly what I'm talking about. The size of Bitcoin, because that's how you put it in context with gold, with the treasury market. It's how you get to $10 trillion Bitcoin, $30 trillion Bitcoin, which translates into you know $500,000 price you know, to a couple million dollars price for Bitcoin per Bitcoin. But if I'm trying to ignore the price altogether and focus on the market value for context for my audience, you know, what good does 
saying that, you know, a thousand sats can be bought for this many dollars. And it doesn't serve me any purpose to explain Bitcoin or to convince people that it's not too early in Bitcoin. Telling somebody that, uh, oh, you can buy this many sats for a dollar is not going to convince them to buy Bitcoin relative to saying Bitcoin is only $1 trillion, but there's $400 trillion of investable assets out there. Um, it, yeah, just, I, I, it, it doesn't serve me any purpose. I use the word sats in my book. I explain that, you know, the Satoshi is the smallest unit within the Bitcoin software. And, you know, it's, it's sure it's an important detail, but, you know, sats the standard or getting people to think in sats so that, you know, we, you know, uh, $60,000 doesn't scare people. Um, I, I don't agree with it. Yeah. So the, the second point to then dig into, um, you asked me earlier about interviewing all these people, kind of like what's on my mind. Uh, also, you mentioned earlier, some people might not have direct, uh, might not directly own Bitcoin, but will have maybe exposure via the stock market. And then you also talk about what will happen to currency when governments can't tax, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not uh, an anarchist. I've been very clear about that. Uh, I, I, I definitely theoretically uh, buy into the narrative. I'm, I'm just not there yet. There's certain aspects. I guess, if anything, I'm, I'm a supporter of small, limited government. One of the things that's going through my mind is, do we eventually see currencies collapsing or will, will we always see, say, a dollar next to the Bitcoin? And, and that's where I'm, I'm wondering what happens because if, if, if you know, Bitcoin does continue to grow and people keep wanting to exit the dollar like they've, they're essentially doing here in El Salvador, what does that actually mean? Do we actually get to the point where Bitcoin is just the currency people are using? What are the implications? Can people actually get their hands on sats? You know, what happens to dollar? So that, that's really on my mind. I'm not articulating it very well, but I think you can probably understand the kind of headspace I'm in. The yeah, area thinking. absolutely. And, uh, you know, my uh, outlook, Pete, and my opinion on that is that unless we have world peace, you're going to have government currencies. And so, um, and so as long as there's competition between countries, there's going to be government currencies because currency is a policy tool that allows countries to do things. And so I definitely see central bank digital cur currencies being introduced, it uh, replacing those old currency systems altogether over the next several years. And it, function side by side with Bitcoin. Uh, again, that's why I'm starting to think of Bitcoin more as an investment, not less as money. It's still money. And um, that's what it was invented as, as an alternative form of money. But it also just serves as an investment um, alongside government money um, for, for a lot of people. And, it, and uh, I think that it will continue to do that over the long term so that the, you know, the dollar won't go away. I do feel like uh, we will have less currencies around the world in 10 years than we do today as weaker currencies succumb to the dollar and Bitcoin uh, and, you know, the Chinese renminbi if they're in that sphere of the world um, where like in El Salvador or Zimbabwe, they're using dollars. Um, other countries in Latin America are doing the same thing. And so um, I, I do feel like currencies will die in... Uh, in countries that just have less stable regimes and, you know, less stable currency history. It's a really interesting period of time to live through. Uh, there is absolutely zero chance I, th I could have predicted this five years ago. Uh, you know, I'm not in Bitcoin. Um, I have no expectation of a new global currency to exist. And now we're living through it and watching it happen in real time and getting to sit on the front lines of it as it happens, it's really, I think it's, it's really interesting. I do worry sometimes about the implications of this. Like, what is the net outcome? You know, does Bitcoin cause the world to become a little bit more unstable on the path to a Bitcoin standard? I, you know, I do, it does weigh on my mind how this all plays out, how this may become a very unstable time geopolitically, economically, what are the implications on people? It, it, it weighs on me, but I, I don't know how to look at it. So like sometimes when the price goes up, I get very excited, you know, because I hold a bit of Bitcoin. But then other times I'm like, shit, what are the implications of this? You know, what are the real implications of this? I think overall it's net positive. 
but I'm just I'm just not fully sure of my position yet. Yeah, it's um, it is tricky, but I do think that geopolitically we are in a very unstable world. So the Bitcoin price going up and people coming into the ecosystem is in part uh, a result of that instability. And you know, I in layered money, I talk about how uh, the dollar system fragility is what in part drives people into Bitcoin, but geopolitical instability as well does drive people into Bitcoin. And so uh, how will the U.S. and China uh, engage over the next few years and or what's going to happen in the Middle East or what's happening with, with religious wars? You know, I all of that stuff is already going on. And I don't think mm. Bitcoin itself exacerbates any of those problems. Um, no, I didn't mean like that. I, I, I mean... I'm. I just worry, generally speaking, about what's what's going to happen uh, over the next few years, and uh, people potentially because you know if the governments can't tax and they can't redistribute income the way they have, there's this kind of gap between people being used to living in social programs or having a social safety net, and that may be disappearing. And and how that transition happens, it's not that I blame Bitcoin. It's just. I, it just weighs on my mind because we we do live in a world where most countries have some form of social safety net, and those could eventually dissipate. And I just worry; I, 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 it weighs on me what the transition is, what that means for people. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like even you talk to the libertarians, and they, I spoke to Scott Horton once, and he said, "I don't want the big red button to switch off government. You know, it needs to be a transitionary period." Yeah, with 8 billion people on the planet, it's right. It's okay to worry. <laughs> I worry about the same thing. You know, we both have kids. It's like you, uh, you, you worry about, you know, what's going to happen in the future. But, um, you know, I still like, I, I've become more optimistic, uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, 20 year old me who uh, has much more like extreme views. Um, I now, I just see that, um, there are so many people around the world that are driving the change for good that uh, I just, I believe that it's going to all work out and that Bitcoin will serve this purpose that transitions us into a more equitable future. Um, doesn't mean that it's going to be without government. Um, and, you know, I don't even know, you know, if it does have any larger effect on the government's ability to function in the future. Uh, governments might exist in the future the same way that they do today uh, in terms of their function, but uh, the monetary system that uh, underpins it has changed and maybe takes away a little bit of their power. Um, but again, it's it's so far into the future, I don't know how it's going to play out. But I, I do think that mm. Bitcoin serves this role as uh, an equalizer, as uh, it, it doesn't allow uh, the bastardization of money uh, as much as we've seen over the last few hundred years. All right, look, the last thing I wanted to raise with you before we finish um, is the Lightning Network. And I remember last time we spoke, uh, I, I said to you, I'm pretty sure I said to you, I, I pretty much dismissed the Lightning Network for a long time. Just like, okay, well, I'm not really spending my Bitcoin. You know, I don't really use uh, my Bitcoin. So uh, very occasionally I send some, I always send it over the base layer. You know, I, I have no need for the Lightning Network right now. Um, coming out here, I absolutely see the need for the Lightning Network for people to be able to move money very, very quickly. Like, you know, when you're going into a store and you are paying with Bitcoin, which people are doing, you know, you absolutely fundamentally need the Lightning Network. Um, I know you've spent a lot of time looking at the Lightning Network. How do you feel about it? Do you, do you, do you see the use case now for it really starting to explode? Well, absolutely. And the Lightning Network is uh, an acceleration of the velocity of Bitcoin by participants already in the network. And it's just, uh, it's so important to strengthen the network effects of Bitcoin itself. Because if you're a Bitcoin user and I'm a Bitcoin user, um, we should, in theory, never be uh, doing on-chain stuff with each other. On-chain should be reserved for the more, you know, the larger you know, transactions and larger final settlement. But uh, in a Bitcoin economy, and especially in the digital world, um, streaming money to each other um, is going to be the norm. And you need Lightning Network to do that. That's why 
when I saw SegWit happen to Bitcoin, I was like, this is this is a legitimate upgrade for Bitcoin because it it allows Bitcoin to be used instantly by participants that have already bought into the narrative. And so, yeah, the Lightning Network is is here to stay. It's growing. The technology is rapidly evolving. It also is a capital markets framework for Bitcoin. Uh, like the team at Lightning Labs is building uh, products that have the idea of capital leases or um, roast beef and is working on something that is going to build a zero coupon yield curve on Bitcoin, which is a very technical sort of thing. But it, it really shows that Lightning Network uh, brings all these additional characteristics and metrics to Bitcoin that make it so much more usable for people that are already in the network. So it's just like, if, if you were to say, why would we need Venmo when we have cash? It's like, you, there, there are different functions for, for different softwares and Lightning Network is basically a software that uses the Bitcoin software. And so um, it's a very useful software that uh, I'm you know extremely optimistic about. Yes, me too. Well, Nick, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I love having you on the show. You know that. Uh, if I can ever do anything to help you, you should let me know when you want to come and promote uh, the next book. Uh, I'd love to read it first. Um, but people should buy your book. Tell them where they can get it. Yeah, you can find my book. It's called Layered Money uh, on Amazon Worldwide. Just Google it. It's, uh, it's everywhere now. The audio book is also available, read by Guy Swan. Um, Ooh, and so uh, it's... It's a great listen. Uh, he did a fantastic job. And uh, I wrote the book absolutely convinced that I was going to ask Guy to read it. Uh, so uh, the book is going great. Uh, you could find it on layeredmoney.com. I have all the links there. And you can find me on Twitter at timevaluebtc. Pete, I really appreciate you having me on. And uh, I'm, I hope that we can do this in person uh, soon this year at some point. Yeah. Well, we did, we, we did get to do our first ever interview in person. Um, I've missed doing in-person in interviews. I really struggle remotely. Um, it's so much easier in person to, to have the dialogue going. I feel a lot more comfortable. So hopefully I'm going to get back to that at some point. I'm thinking of getting myself a studio in Texas, in Austin at some point. And uh, I can go out there every couple of weeks and record a bunch of interviews. So fingers crossed that'll happen as well. But listen, look, appreciate you, dude. Appreciate everything you're doing. Anyone listening, go and buy Nick's book. Come on. It's, uh, it's an amazing read. And uh, yeah, hopefully this year we'll, we'll get to hang out. Love it. Take care, Pete. Okay. How do you enjoy that one? I know some of you really enjoy the Nick shows. The downloads of them are always great. Nick is smashing it at the moment. His book, Layered Money, is absolutely flying. And this article was another banger. And if you haven't checked it out, there are links to both in the show notes. And if you want to hear more from Nick, then go and listen to episode 281, which was one of my favorite interviews of last year. If you want to get in touch or you want to jump in the Telegram channel, please do. Just search for What Bitcoin Did or you can hit me up at hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, can you go and leave me a review? Just head over to Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help with the listings. I'm doing pretty well with them at the moment, and that's down to people like you leaving me a review. Five-star if it deserves it. I also read the one-star ones. If there's negative feedback, I do listen to that. I do always want to make the best show possible. But yeah, if you can go leave me a review, that would be very cool. I'm out here in Guatemala. I'm out here checking out what's going on with some of the Bitcoin peeps out here. It's very interesting. I think I'm going to record a show here with some of the people I've met. Some really interesting stuff and you know, quite a tragic story about what's going on here in part of Guatemala. So I do want to cover that and hopefully support the people here. All right, have a great rest of your week and I will see you all on Friday. Bye.